Welcome to Stuff We Love Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stuff We Love Podcast. I am Scott, and I'm honored to welcome back to our show one of our greatest guests, frequent contributor, and wonderful man. Dan, welcome back. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well, Scott. Thank you. It's great to be back. Wonderful to see you this evening. We are recording this on December 21st, winter solstice, correct? Right. So it's now the shortest day of the year. Right. The shortest day of the year. It's cold out here where we're recording from. <laughs> and I see we're, Dan and I are on Zoom right now. And I see Dan taking a drink from a Beatles cup. And that is appropriate because tonight. That, yes, it is. It's, it's very appropriate because it's uh, George's uh, picture from the Let It Be album cover. Yes, that is correct. On the cup is a picture of George from Let It Be. And tonight, Dan and I are going to be talking about the recent film, The Beatles Get Back which aired on Disney Plus over the course of three nights, beginning on Thanksgiving night, 2021. This film has gotten a lot of attention recently, so we are assuming you have heard of it, at least. But if you haven't, this was a documentary film directed by Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings fame that basically offered viewers the chance to see significant footage from the Beatles recording sessions for Let It Be, hear audio from that time period. And it ran over the course of these three nights. It must have been... Uh, in excess of eight hours, right, Dan? Is that what it came to? Yeah, it was, it was almost, yeah, I'd say probably like eight and a half, nine hours. Yeah, a lot of lot of great stuff on there. So uh, as our listeners know, Dan, you are a major Beatles fan and very knowledgeable about the group. I've often said how you got me into the Beatles and changed my life that way. That is no exaggeration. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it tonight. And I would like to begin by asking you a question. One of the things that I have heard other Beatles commentators say is that this was the biggest event in Beatles world since the Beatles anthology. Now the Beatles anthology goes back to the nineties. It was the ABC documentary series that traced the history of the group. And I, I heard that and I understand that I personally disagreed with that. I think it was a bigger moment in Beatles history on September 9th, 2009, when the entire catalog was remastered on CD Rock Band came out that day, Beatles Rock Band, although I don't put that in the same category as the CD remasters. But for me, that was bigger than the Beatles Get Back because it was something that encompassed their whole career. I would like your thoughts on whether or not you feel the Beatles Get Back was the biggest event since Anthology. Honestly, I, I mean, I, I kind of I feel like it was mm -hmm. um, only because we were going to be seeing something that was going to be, I hate to sound over dramatic, but it was going to be in a way life altering because it was going to change possibly um, the reality we've known for 50 plus years as to what exactly happened at the very end. And, you know, there's still a lot of time from when recording wrapped on, you know, January 30th and 31st, 1969 to when the Beatles broke up in, you know, May of 1970. But, you know, Let It Be was supposed to be the, you know, I guess the, the major event where everything kind of fell apart and imploded. Um, and we were gonna see more footage from that period, from, from those sessions. Um, and I think everybody, people were, you know, very interested to see what exactly that was going to show. And then when we started here, um, you know, Peter Jackson talking about it and, 
saying that, you know, it's going to alter your perception of, of what actually happened mm-hmm. during that time. And, and I, I even reading something that he said where he talked about um, talking with your, with uh, Paul and Ringo and, and Paul and Ringo being like, well, you know, why would you want to revisit something that's so miserable? You know, we don't want to. And, and uh, Peter Jackson saying, do you really, do you, do you really remember clearly everything from then? Because if you watch this, if you watch what I've been watching, it's not how you remembered it. You have to see it again. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think it has, I think it has had, it's, I think it's changed the conversation as to, you know, the, the, the Beatles swan song. And Dan, that's a great point. I know for me, it has absolutely 100% changed my impression of the breakup of the Beatles. I, for years, had, for lack of a better phrase, bought into the narrative that Let It Be was a period of complete tension and strife within the band. I think this was a viewpoint that I had because the Beatles themselves had talked about it this way. Mm -hmm. When you hear them in the Beatles anthology talking about it, that was the impression I got. And yet it's very clear to me from watching this film that perhaps the vast majority of these sessions were actually joyous and uh, the band got along pretty well. Yes, of course, George quit for a period of time. And I'm not saying there weren't moments of tension, but particularly when they went to uh, the Beatles during this time, they started at Twickenham Film Studios. That was filled with more tension. There's no doubt about it. When the band moved to Apple Studios, then I think things really kicked into gear when Billy Preston showed up. It became a fun, enjoyable recording period. That's very evident from the film. Oh, for sure. I think uh, one of the things that um, I walked away with, especially after the first episode, was was Twickenham seemed absolutely miserable mm-hmm. to me, and I wasn't there, just watching it. <laughs> right. You know, just I'm like I was putting myself kind of in that position. Uh, of what it must have been like to be in this like cavernous studio and um, being filmed and like not really having, um, you know, getting up early in the morning to do that and just kind of, I don't know, it just felt like heavy. And mm-hmm. um, you could kind of see it was like, it's like they didn't want to be there. Right. Right. Um, but they were trying. Yeah, Dan, I understand completely what you're saying. It's almost like in part one, when you see the Beatles in Twickenham, it's the film is not boring, but it seems like a boring place to be. And I think when you're in a boring place and you're a creative person, your creativity could be stifled. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, of course, <laughs> because of the scene where Paul writes, get back in, <laughs> in two minutes, maybe the creativity was not stifled, but certainly it didn't seem like a fun location to be at. And that, I think, uh, was very evident, especially in part one. Well, you know, it's, 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 there's ups and downs of being in, like, the doldrums of boredom. Um, and I think, you know, one is, like, you're kind of hit this, like, malaise of just not really having the motivation to do anything. And then there's other times where it's, like, you're just kind of fiddling with something and, Oh look, <laughs> you know, uh, out of out of the ether, uh, something comes, which was, I think, what was happening there. You know, just Paul just waiting on John and with the with the Hofner and just you know thumping away, and then here comes Get Back from mm-hmm. that. Um, 
but yeah, it's it's it didn't seem like it was a place that was conducive to um, fostering a creative environment. Um, and it it was it was at that point, you know, fully a television show project, and um, really, I mean introduced all of us to to michael lindsey hogg because we've heard the name um but never really saw much of the man or his interactions and uh i i could say within like five minutes of seeing michael lindsey hogg i was ready to punch him in the face like i'm surprised (laughs) i'm surprised like they didn't jump on him because i don't know he he was very annoying to me i found him highly annoying Michael Lindsay Hogg has, uh, I feel bad for the guy. He's emerged from this film. I've heard him be referred to as the villain in the story. I think that's probably too strong a word, but I think Howard Stern said it best. Stern was talking a lot about Get Back. He's a big Beatles fan. And he said, Michael Lindsay Hogg should have read the room, <laughs> that there was not real interest in traveling overseas. And for our listeners, basically, the Beatles Get Back follows the Beatles as they prepare for this supposed live show they're going to put on. There was talk about performing it overseas and on a cruise ship and all this stuff is. And Lindsay, Michael Lindsay Hogg was really pushing for this concert in some location. What ultimately be ended up being done was the famous Beatles rooftop performance uh, in 1969, January 1969. But um, yeah, he he has emerged as the uh, I don't want to say dislikable, but the you know people were angry at him watching it in a way. They mm-hmm. they got frustrated with him. Dan, before we continue about the movie, I want to ask you a question. So let it be the album. Where does it rank for you in the Beatles catalog? And where were you in your Beatles fandom when you first got into the album? Um, where does it rank? It's it's um it's it's actually close to the top. Wow. I've always really liked the album. Okay, um, great. I've always really liked the album, and and I think one of the things that I've liked about it um, is you could feel uh, it, it always felt organic, even with some of the specter alterations. Um, and I think that's because of, of, of the inclusion of the rooftop numbers that were included. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, I've got a feeling a one after nine Oh nine dig a pony. They all have a very, you know, you you could you could feel the energy, um, and then you know, classics like like uh, "Let It Be" the long and winding road. I always really enjoyed um, "Let It Be." Um, it's not you know in my um, wouldn't say it's in my top five, but definitely like you know, top six or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I discovered I, I discovered it early actually. Um, it was probably one of the first few um, Beatles albums that I purchased and, and listened to. Interesting. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah, so. You know, some people refer to Let It Be as the quote unquote worst Beatles album. I'm sure you've heard that before. And mm-hmm. I don't agree with that. I don't think, you know, I, I don't even like to use the phrase worst Beatles album because it seems like a, a crime to even utter that, those words. But <laughs> When you look at the track list on Let It Be, and you, you mentioned some of the songs before, but two of us across the universe, I Me, Mine, I've Got a Feeling, Let It Be, Long and Winding Road, Get Back, and more. 
if that's yeah. the worst Beatles album, well, that's the proof they're the greatest band of all time, <laughs> right there. Right, right, right. And if your justification for it being the worst Beatles album is uh, Dig It and Maggie May, right. um, you know, we can uh, look at a lot of rec- records that had weaker tracks, and at least those tracks only last like 30 seconds. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a memory, and, and we'll, we'll get more into the film in a moment, but I have a memory when I was first getting into the Beatles. The majority of what I bought first were early Beatles recordings. And I remember my mom had a vinyl of Let It Be. And so on the front cover, there was Beatles with long hair and Beatles with mustaches and beards for in the case of Paul stuff. And so I really kind of said, oh, I wonder what this Beatles sounds like. And I remember it was a, just a totally discovering a totally different sound than the a Hard Day's Night sound and with the Beatles and all of that stuff. So it just it gave me an education pretty early on about the diverse genres that the Beatles participated in. And it is very organic, like you just like you said. Mm-hmm. So, Dan, there's been yeah. a lot of commentary about Get Back Already, the film. And I wanted to take our discussion tonight in maybe a few different ways, because it's a massive thing to talk about. You could do a three part podcast series just discussing it. But very true. I'm just going to if it works with you, what I'm going to do is throw out different aspects of the film and just get your reaction for our listeners. Dan and I have not consulted about this before recording. So we're talking about this for the first time here on the show. So what I wanted to do is begin with the Beatles themselves. And I want to go through each member one at a time and to get the impressions you had of each member while watching the film, Um, what you discovered about that member that you didn't necessarily know before, for example. And I'm going to start with, uh, let's start with John, John Lennon. What was your take on watching him in this film? You know, um, John was really, I feel, a lot more involved than we were led to believe that he was involved during this time. I think the the story was always that he, at this point, was very removed from the from the band and, you know, was distanced and was all kind of wrapped up in Yoko and um, and what she was doing and the influence that she had on him. And, and the only time we really see anything with that is um, when Paul is discussing with Ringo and, um, and Linda and Michael Lindsay Hogg and a couple of others, the meeting that they had. And Linda is talking about how, how well, Yoko spoke for John. Um, John didn't say anything and Yoko spoke for John. But throughout the rest of the film, we don't, we don't see that. Um, I think he's very um, involved in what's going on. Um, he's definitely... Um, you know, still the wisecracker because mm-hmm. he's always he's the one that's making a lot of the jokes or, you know, when they're when they're jamming on something, uh, you know, singing parody lyrics and whatnot. Um, he's very bothered by being asked to uh, introduce the Rolling Stones on the rock and roll circus. So we <laughs> yeah. keep seeing callbacks to to that throughout. But um, he definitely was involved in what was going on. And, and I, I feel like there was still it was still kind of like the hard days night, John. A little mm-hmm. bit there, like you were seeing that. Um, not at all like the picture that has been painted for decades. And Yoko was quiet for most of the right. time. I mean, she's just sitting there kind of creepily and morose, but, but she wasn't, you know, interjecting. Right. Except for when she was screeching like a cat. But that's, <laughs> that's a different story. On a side note, I, I have to say, I loved watching Yoko. <laughs> scream on the microphone it was just like i, I had the same reaction that uh, linda's daughter heather had at the time of just <laughs> staring in awe that was featured in the film um yeah 
let's, uh, I agree with your assessment of John. I think that sums it up perfectly. There's nothing really I can add to it. Um, let's go now to, uh, let's go to George, George Harrison. Um, for, before you respond, let me just give our listeners some background. You know, George never really had the opportunities that John and Paul had in terms of song placements on an album. He was blossoming as a songwriter, but when you're in a group with Lennon and McCartney, your ability to get tracks on the records is going to be somewhat limited. And now by this time, the let it be period, George was, he had already written while my guitar gently weeps and some other great, great Beatles songs. And you see the genesis of something being written and uh, all things must pass and several other great tracks that are now regarded as classics. What was your take watching George in the film? Um, I think watching George, you know, you could definitely tell he was frustrated. Um, and, and it was creative frustration. Um, I, I feel like he's kind of in between, you know, the band and wanting to kind of go off on his own. Um, and he talks about that. Like he almost brings up at one point kind of like the Genesis model, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what if we could stay together as a band, but then you know, we could all do our own solo things and then maybe that'll allow us to come back together and be able to still function as the Beatles thing. Um, but, you know, he still, he was very vocal. He wasn't very quiet. You know, the quiet one was a little bit more, um, had a lot more to say in those sessions. Um, I like, you know, you kind of got to see a little bit of his creative um, influence on the songs. Yes. Even though he wasn't the writer, um, he would chime in and say, um, what, what were they talking? Was it was it Get Back they were talking about when he was talking about um, the Four Tops? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was Reach he's, Out, he's, I'll Be There. Was that the song that he Reach was Out, I'll Be There. Yeah. He's talking about, yeah, and he's talking about when they, when they have the stop, the pause, right. and then it goes Got into that the bass. chorus. What if we had that stop and you, that's what you need is that um i mean even when they're trying to when paul's trying to work out the long and winding road and, and george is the one that's like do you hear do you want strings on it you know do you hear strings on it and and paul's like well i'm really not sure i don't know um like there was all little things like that and and my favorite part was when ringo is playing octopus's garden yeah <laughs> for the first time and George is kind of sitting there with the guitar. And at first he's kind of like, has this look on his face, like, oh, let's bring out another stupid song. Um, but then like, you could see the change and he becomes interested. And then he goes over and he actually pretty much writes like the, the pre-chorus yeah. into the chorus of the song with Ringo, like right there. Um, it was, it, it was really, really cool to see, but uh, you could definitely see the frustration. He was kind of, also, the Debbie Downer, like if someone was going to say, come out and be like, well, that really sucked or that's stupid <laughs> or we really right. don't want to do that. Like it was going to be George. Sure. Um, even if someone was like really high on it, like, you know, George is the one who's going to like pipe up and say something like when they were talking about going to Tripoli and the amphitheater. Right. And, um, and George was like, well, I'd much rather just go on holiday for a couple of weeks and then come back and do it like. <laughs> want to go out there um, I, yeah yeah also you know i think when they were talking about taking fans on the cruise ship he said he was basically i think was the one that said what, what are you out of your minds we're going to do this it's you know yeah. it's ridiculous also 
with the octopus's garden scene, imagine for a moment that was Paul. Okay. Ringo showed up and Paul was there or John. And it was them that helped write the song. People would be saying, what a genius moment. What an absolute genius. He was. This was George. Mm -hmm. He really, in that yeah. scene to me, showed his, his genius. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And that was like, because it wasn't, well, maybe we should have a little something here and you want to work on that. He just, well, to get from that chord to that chord, if you put this in and, and you know, you had the, the first part of the song pretty much there. And it mm -hmm. was pretty, it was really cool to see. What about Ringo? Ringo is just, uh, I, I walked away from the whole thing. Like, wow, Ringo's just a really good guy. Right. You know, like Ringo's the most, like the friendliest. He's quiet. He's just, he's, he's kind of going along with everything. Um, and he'll put in his two cents when he needs to. But really, he was just like, all right, well, whatever, you know, whatever you think is best, I'm going to go along with. Right. Um, and he was always there. Always. Like, always there. Like, I think he was in pretty much every session. Is he the first one there? Like, it seems like <laughs> everyone else is just kind of walking in and Ringo's just there. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's true. There first and hanging out and just waiting for everybody. He didn't complain. He didn't get involved in the drama at this time. I mean, I, anybody that knows the Beatles story well will recall that Ringo did quit the group, I guess, in 1968. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he was immune to moments like this. But I think it really shows in this film he was an easygoing, was and still seems like a very easygoing guy. Peace mm -hmm. and love, as he himself would say. Yes, but everything seemed pretty easygoing. Like, you know, there's been stories of like band blowups and people quitting and walking out of sessions and mm -hmm. you know I, I you know all sorts of thing, you know, things things uh, that you know bernie Lee led in quitting the eagles by pouring a beer over glenn fry's head and you know stuff like that and george is just like oh, okay i think i'm gonna leave now right <laughs> you're gonna go home now i'm leaving the band and you know i'll see you at the clubs and <laughs> it's like the most uh the most calm uh blowout of uh any any blow up in a band that's something i've heard i'm sure dan in your in your life too you have the same thing i have which is people who know we love the beatles come to us with comments and questions and i've had several people say to me why did george quit the beatles it really was not obvious in the film and i have to agree it was it would be like me saying right now on the show okay guys i'm quitting the podcast <laughs> you know it literally is that mm -hmm. was that seamless um you know i think Anybody watching the entirety of Get Back will recognize the, like you said, Dan, the creative frustrations that George was experiencing. And I think that all added to his uh, desire to quit the group. But uh, but you're right. For the most part, it was not nasty. Even the scene that was part of the Let It Be film that everybody remembers where George says to Paul, I'll play it, you know, how you want me to play it. I won't play it at all. There's that moment when you watch it in its full context in Get Back. It's not that big a deal. No, it really is. And the point. And the point, you know, that he's making and he sums it up right at the end where he says, you know, uh, I'll do whatever it is you want me to do, but I don't think you know mm -hmm. what that is. Right. And, you know, just saying like, we're, you know, you don't know where, where you're going with this and you're overthinking it and saying it's too complex. But, you know, we have to play it through to see where it goes. Mm -hmm. like, we have to. That's how we get to see how things work out is we've got right. to play it through. And Paul was very, I mean, that's one thing with Paul um, through this entire process. He's very in his head a lot. 
you know, I think he's very just kind of um, anxious and, 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 and very, I think, worried about where the project is going to go. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And let's and, talk uh, about, I'm sorry, he, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, and he just always seems like whenever you see him, he seems like he's very um, preoccupied, you know. Do you get the sense from what, let's turn now to Paul. Do you get the sense from watching Paul and get back that, I hate to criticize Paul because I love him, but like overbearing is the word that comes to mind? You know, I don't know because I feel like he's gotten kind of the rap of being almost like this dictator towards the end that, you know, was trying to hold everything together and was telling, you know, Ringo what to play on the drums and, um, and, and, and George went to play on guitar. And, you know, I, I don't see this like Machiavellian presence, you know, it's, he's, if anything, seems very kind of insecure mm. about where they were at. Um, I think he could, you know, it's, it's always been kind of compared, he, he and John being like a marriage. Um, you know, sometimes when a relationship, you know, um, romantic relationship or any kind of relationship is kind of coming to an end, you always feel like there's one party that's really kind of like one foot out the door. And then there's the other party that's still trying to figure out how to hold it together Mm -hmm. and i feel like for the party that's one foot out the door it's very easy to come to terms with things ending because you're already kind of halfway there for the person who's trying to hold it together it becomes a very emotional difficult thing to deal with and there's almost this like desperation to try to keep things together at all costs and i think that's where paul was you know paul was definitely the one in the relationship that was wanted it to still work, wanted to fix yeah. it. Um, you know, he was the, the party that like, you know, it's heading towards divorce and you're, and, and who brings up like, well, let's try going on date nights again. And say, like he would, that's where Paul was. And John was the one that was out the, like one foot out the door. George was one foot out the door. Mm-hmm. And I think you see Paul really trying to maybe create a situation where maybe they find the joy in being the Beatles again, and then they can continue from there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. That's what I get a lot from watching him throughout the film. I think that's a great analysis. And one of the most powerful moments of the film for me, I guess was in part one, or maybe it was part two. What I seem to recall was that George had quit the group by this point. It's clear. There's a lot of things not going well in this process. And the camera zooms in on Paul while he's having this very emotional moment and you could see the tears well up in his eyes. It's almost like this recognition that the group may be coming to an end and he's thinking, are we going to get through this period? Mm-hmm. And um, you're right. I think the marriage analogy works. He's trying to keep it going. And in that moment, you could see that he recognizes that it's probably not going to be kept going. Yeah. And I think is that too, is that the moment is he sitting? Is that when he's sitting with Linda and the rest yes. of them? And she, I think if you know, I noticed it right away too. She, she like hooks his arm. Oh, I didn't that notice point. that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, she like hooks his arm and like it's like patting like his hand. Like she reads what's going on. I, I it's a very like to me it was a very poignant moment. Like you yeah. can see, you know, the stress that was kind of and the emotion that he was going through. And even in like certain little exchanges, you know, with John or with George, like there's almost a um a sadness there in in Paul with the interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, when we watch the film, you really recognize how young they were. You know, there's something about mm-hmm. the Beatles. I've heard a lot of people say that when they listen to the Beatles and watch them, they think of them as guys in their 40s or older, you know, it's, and really they're not, they're in their 20s. Think about what, you know, the average person in their 20s, they're, they're still discovering the world. They're not even fully themselves yet in so many respects. And it's, uh, I think about us in our 20s and how we would have responded to those situations. And it's so clear the Beatles didn't live in the real world in the sense that they had been insulated amongst themselves to a certain degree. And to know that's coming to an end must have been frightening to all of them in some degree, but especially Paul, it seems. Yeah, I think Paul, you know, it's always been said, and Paul said it himself in interviews, that he couldn't, was the most concerned about life outside the band. Like, what was he going to do? Right. Um, and, uh, and I think it's telling, too, that, like, what did Paul do when the band broke up? Like, he made two technically two solo albums and then he was in a band again you know just trying to and for all intents and purposes it was a solo project but he didn't want it to be a solo project in the beginning wings was going to be a band you know um denny lane was going to replace john and they were going to be a band and it didn't it didn't end up that way but you know that's what he he envisioned so i'm going to throw us for a total curveball now because we are recording this just a few days before Christmas. We're going to return to get back in a moment. But speaking of Paul, what would you rate Wonderful Christmas Time on a scale of zero to 10? Um, that's a really tough question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know if you can really call it a bad song. Because Agree. it has the ability to worm its way into your head and it will stay there um for 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 quite some time um i always liked it until um i i liked it until i i was working at um at joe's american barn grill over the holiday season and and you know back back then <laughs> in our college days mm-hmm. before um streaming and sirius xm and all that great stuff we have now uh, you know, restaurants got a packs of CDs. They would usually have like a five disc carousel somewhere and it would play the same five discs. If you were lucky to have be in a place with a five disc carousel, some it's just one CD and you had to change it. Um, and one of the Christmas CDs at, at Joe's had wonderful Christmas time on it. And if you worked a double shift or even a single shift, you would hear it a whole lot <laughs> and it was after that that i was like i'm sorry paul i don't think i could take this song anymore um so just because of that i'd have to rate it about maybe a six i'll take that given how much hatred the song gets from so many different people right. but i wouldn't go as low as 
you know, some people absolutely hate it. Um, and we'll be like, oh, it's the worst Christmas song ever. I, I do not think so. I happen to really like it. I recognize the cheesiness and the fact that it's kind of, it's a small world vision that it gets in your head and can drive you, you know, mad if you just play it over. But I happen to think it's a fun, catchy song that puts me in the mood for the holiday season. I just, I just love that song. Yeah. I mean, and holiday songs in themselves are like cheesy by nature. Right. I mean, sure. so I, there's going to be a, a, a cheese factor to it. Um, I'll give you I a mean, hot take. This is a hot take. You ready for this? I say this without any irony or being joking around. I like wonderful Christmas time significantly more than white Christmas. Okay. That some people might get mad at that, but I, I, I can understand that across the world. Look, you they're have, unsubscribing from stuff. We love podcasts. No, but you have people that are like, like crap all over wonderful Christmas time. Right. Right. But like, we'll extol the virtues of something like, uh, um, do they know it's Christmas? Right. Which <laughs> right. is, um, which is like not only also kind of cheesy, but some of the lyrics are dumb. Sure. <laughs> you know, like some lyrics are kind of stupid. Um, you know, Oh, wonderful Christmas time is a stupid song. Well, what's your favorite holiday song? I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. <laughs> right. One of the know, worst, where am I got run over by a reindeer? Song. It's like, okay, like, all right. So none of these are, are masterpieces. <laughs> you know? And I there's a cheese factor agree. in all of them. And, you know, it's not like you're picking like the greatest rock song ever recorded and someone's throwing out like, sure. you know, wonderful Christmas time. It's, 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 uh, it's a different kind of conversation. I that's a great point. And I never thought about it that way because some of these other Christmas songs, I know they're classics and I'm not going to say anything bad about them, but we can all recognize that they're not exactly the, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein. <laughs> they're not the greatest. Right. And they're well, good. even like, yeah, even like, I mean, people love uh, Mariah Carey. All I want for Christmas is you. I can't stand that song. And I can't stand that take. song when it came that's a hot take. out. Yeah, well, I I couldn't stand it when it came out. I found it annoying, you know. And people are like, oh, it's the it's such a great song. It's a Christmas classic. I don't think so. Wow. I yeah, I don't. I'm me. actually stunned to hear this. That that comment has stunned me. And you and I really? are in agreement on so much musically. I may have to respectfully <laughs> disagree with you there, but I will That's say, okay. you can... it, it gets overplayed tremendously. That song at this point. Mm-hmm. So overplayed. And you know, another reason why I might not like it is because, and you know, no offense to to, to any parents out there, but they play it at every single school holiday concert. Mm -hmm. And there's always a kid who gets a solo who sings, you know, that, that the opening part. And instead of singing it, just singing it as they would sing it, they try to do the like Mariah Carey impression where they're putting 75 <laughs> notes where there doesn't need to be 75 notes. Right. You know, and it's like, just no, just stop, please. Every year. <laughs> it's one of the lessons of American Idol. You can't do Whitney. You can't do Mariah. <laughs> you know, you, you got to let the great ones be the great ones. Right. Mm-hmm. So now let's go back to 1969. <laughs> that was a lot of fun, by the way. That was awesome. That, that um, was a good tangent. That was great. Thank you. Well, thank you. You know, your comments are insightful as always. Um, Dan, I wanted to ask you, because again, it's such a massive film. I wanted to ask you what you may not have liked about the movie. 
I think you and I would agree that overall it was great and we we loved it. But um, if there is anything you would change, what would it be? And there doesn't have to be, but if there was. Um, I feel like it wasn't necessarily palatable for the casual Beatles fan. Um, I don't think this is a place that you send someone who's just getting into the Beatles or just knows the Beatles in a casual manner um, because of its its length Um, and because of there are times where it's like, um, you know, you're you're kind of there's kind of a lull (laughs) and then uh, you have to you're, you're kind of with them. Right. It's almost like an immersive experience. You have to get through the lull with them to get to the high parts. Sure. And I think that that keys more to people like us who are, you know, really big fans and have, you know, really kind of are passionate about the Beatles, um, which there's a lot of us. But I think it's geared more to, to people like us who want, who are happy to take that trip. Mm-hmm. Um, because we've heard so much about it before and we really want to see what's going on. Um, for people that are more casual fans or maybe just getting introduced to the Beatles, it, it might be a little bit daunting mm-hmm. um, and, and might have them, you know, switching it off too soon. Um, so it would be cool if there was like a, like a casual Beatles cut, Beatles fan cut that was just kind of, you know, um abridged for 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 those tastes but um i think that was that's the only real criticism i i have of it Mm -hmm. you know yeah and i can't even really be i can't even really be jerky and be like i can't even really be jerky and be like cut out the yoko parts because i felt like those were necessary too because they were eye-opening as well they were eye-opening and speaking of yoko well let me just say the one thing i would change is only one and who am I to question Peter Jackson, right? You know, it's uh, I could barely make a movie on my iPhone, <laughs> a two minute video. But it's um, I would just say I thought part two. The second hour felt a little long, even for me. Mm-hmm. For whatever that's worth. I mean, it's not a major criticism, but uh, that's the only mm-hmm. thing I mentioned has changed. But the Yoko stuff I was going to talk to you about this as well, to me, was very enlightening because. I have had so many conversations with very casual Beatles fans over the years that end up with them saying, and Yoko broke up the Beatles. That's the default way it goes. I never believe that. Anybody that studied the Beatles knows that there were issues that went well beyond Yoko. But that's when you watch Get Back, it's so clear she did not break up the Beatles. It's blatantly obvious. The band jammed with her when she was singing on the microphone multiple times. They were not mean to her, at least to her face. They were polite. Maybe behind the scenes, there was some um, anger, but she got along with Linda. I thought one of the most fascinating moments, I can't tell you why, was in part one when Linda showed up and you see her and Yoko uh, intimately chatting. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a very telling moment. Um, And I think somebody said on Facebook, a friend of mine, I thought it was an insightful comment that after watching Get Back, this, I don't know if this guy was a big Beatles fan or not, but he said, it's possible that John some days needed prodding to go to the session and maybe Yoko helped keep him on track. 
which I thought was pretty fascinating uh, analysis. Um, what's your take on uh, Yoko? Um, well, I, I was going to say the same thing. Like, you know, uh, for all that we were told about kind of the disdain from the other three of having Yoko in the studio at all times, like you, you, you don't see that. Um, they're very welcoming to her. Um, and yeah, they jam with her. Like, willingly on several occasions it's not just like oh here's yoko okay let's humor john like they're into it um i i honestly and the, the one time you do hear like some talk about it is you know, paul's talking about um at one point well you know but this is this is that they want to just be with each other now like mm -hmm. you know they're they want to be together and he says something about like well this is kind of how john is anyway um and john was very like if he <clears throat> it wasn't her fault that he kind of got distracted from the beatles and put a lot of attention into her um because it wasn't just it wasn't just romantic he also saw her as another artistic partner yes so there was a creative attraction there too and he wanted to get away from being Beatle John and wanted to find, I guess, who John was. And she was kind of like his, his path to that. So I would honestly not be surprised if there were days where he was like, I don't want to go into this. And she was like, no, you have to go. Like, you know, we're going. Um, and maybe that's why she was always there with him. Mm -hmm. because it was like, oh, well, I'll be there too. And I'll help, you know, I'll be your creative muse when you like, you know, because he could pull himself and he was for, I mean, you look at, if you look at John's contributions to the band from 1963 to 1966, mm -hmm. John is overwhelmingly not just like, I think a Paul calls it says at one time, Tim, when, then the, when they hide the microphone in the, in the flower pot, um, Paul says something to him like, well, you're, you know, you're the boss. You've always been the boss. Um, and from 1963 to, I mean, it was his band in the beginning from 63 to 66. I mean, most of the strong material is John's. I mean, I think he's singing the most lead vocals. He's probably got the most songwriting credits on albums and singles. And then with rubber soul revolver. And I think more so with revolver, it starts to flip. And you see Paul start to kind of take over the reins and less of John's contributions. I mean, if you look at Pepper, he's only got, what, three? Or really, I mean, like, what, two and a half? Lucy in the Sky. Three and a half the, credits on that? Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Being for the benefit um, of Mr. Kite. Being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Good morning, good morning. Good, good morning, good morning, and part of the, a day in the life. So you're looking right. at three and a half credits. Um George has one. Yes. Ringo has nothing, and the rest is all Paul. Yeah, when you um, mention Rubber Soul Revolver as perhaps, or particularly Revolver being the start of the shift, in my mind, I kind of went through the songs that are Paul songs on Revolver. Think about how amazing those songs are. You have Eleanor Rigby, Here, There, and Everywhere, Good Day Sunshine, For No One, and Got to Get You Into My Life. How, I mean, that's astounding. Utter, utter genius, just pure musical mm -hmm. genius. Yeah. So you were, you were kind of seeing his withdrawal and he 
met Yoko in 66, mm. you know, so he's starting to pull more towards, you know, for, I mean, also uh, things that were happening in that time to John that you can't just, just that he met Yoko. I mean, he was ingesting large amounts of LSD. Right. Um, to the point of, you know, there being very few times where he was actually not tripping. Right. Um, he was entering into this. Yeah, he'd had extramarital affairs before, but this was a major extramarital romance that he was getting involved in. So it was having stress on his home life where he didn't quite want to be. Um, so there was a lot of tension going on with him that seemed to maybe stifle his creativity a little bit. Right. Um, I think that might be evident from the White Album where there's a lot more of his songs on there because a lot of them were written in India where what else were you going to do but, <laughs> you know, True. maybe sit around and, and, and write songs. Um, after the White Album um, period, I mean, again, Abbey Road, very, very little John um, on Abbey Road, even playing. Right. on a lot of the songs. So um, it, it could very well be that Yoko was a catalyst to get him into the studio right? to get stuff done. Perhaps the Beatles would have broken up sooner if not for Yoko. Just a thought. I, you know, that, that, that is a thought. I think if you want to point a finger at who broke up, if you want to name one individual person who broke up the Beatles. Can I guess who you're going to say? Can I guess? Who? who? I, would, yeah, yeah, I, would, I would predict you're going to say Alan Klein. I, I am going to say Alan Klein. Mm -hmm. I was going to joke first and say Michael Lindsay Hall. I'm gonna say, no, I'm just <laughs> no, no, no. But no, it would be Alan Klein. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Alan Klein was the manager of the Rolling Stones, who was intent on becoming the manager of the Beatles. And uh, he ended up, long story short, representing John, George and Ringo, but not Paul. Um, and was has historically been looked at as... Uh, Mean, I think, is a, is a, is that a fair word? Mean and um, um, cr and and crooked. Mean and crooked, and push the band to their breaking point from a business perspective, which is really, in my opinion, what broke up the Beatles. And um, kind of was a hustler, for lack of a better phrase. Oh, for sure, he, he was. Um, I think mm -hmm. I think Mick Jagger warned John Lennon about Alan Klein. Yes, Mick Jagger did warn John Lennon about Alan Klein. I think yeah. he might have warned, uh, there might have been a conversation with Paul too, which is why Paul was also kind of iffy of him. And, and, and I, I think it's interesting how um, in the film, in Get Back, um, where John is mentioning, I think it's in the second part that he has a meeting with Alan right. Klein and he comes back and he's talking about how the meeting went. And he's talking uh, with, I, I forget, maybe Mal Evans is there, but I know he's talking with Glenn Johns, right. um, who had had experience with the Stones. And Glenn Johns is like, well, you know, he's kind of, it's like he's trying to be nice. He's kind of strange. Like, I don't know, he's just like, just kind of get a vibe. He's kind of an odd right. guy. And John's like, oh, no, he's he's fantastic. He's <laughs> and Glenn Johns, and I, it's kind of, it's, it's, Almost like, you know, you need to kind of take the hints that people around you are throwing. And sure. But um, but yeah, I, I mean, John and George and John convinced George and Ringo to go with Klein and Paul was steadfast about not. And he had 
Lee Eastman, Linda's dad, yeah. and her brother, John, who looked after uh, uh, his interests. And I, w- I would say that he, he made out better than, uh, than the other three with the whole. With the whole I agree deal. with that. I agree. Now, Dan, mm-hmm. I wanted to mention that earlier tonight on Twitter, I, meant, I spoke about the fact that we were going to be recording the show tonight. And I asked my uh, followers on Twitter to uh, tell us what some of their favorite moments from Get Back were. And I wanted to read some of those and uh, get your reaction. I think that these are great, great choices. So let's see what we got here. We got uh, Julie, who is a former guest on Stuff We Love podcast. We'd love to actually, Julie, if you're listening, love to have you back on in 2022. Um, Paul pulling Get Back out of thin air. And we, we mentioned that earlier. That was that was a mind-blowing moment. Um, somebody on Twitter had referred to that after they saw it as one of the great scenes in rock and roll films. And I think it is. Yeah, I mean, how often do you get to see like a song basically written from start to finish yeah. um, in, in real time? I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's ever, you know, been anything else that's that that we've seen um i know the stones had something where you basically saw i think it was called one-to-one um in 68 where you basically saw the genesis of um or i should say the evolution of sympathy for the devil from like an acoustic blues to what it became mm-hmm. but i don't know if we've ever seen on film like the the chronicling of a song's beginning out of like nothing to a finished product. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's pretty incredible. Yeah. It was a, it's definitely a memorable moment from the film. Uh, one of the standout moments I, I was telling people that had told me they have no intention of watching get back. I'm like, well, I just got to tell you about this one scene <laughs> and it's uh, that's how good it was. Uh, then we have a bill at Mr. Coaster one, by the way, Julie is, I want to give a shout out at, Huli Quinn, H-O-O-L-E-Q-U-I-N-N on Twitter. Uh, then we got Bill at Mr. Coaster One. So many favorite moments. Paul coming up with Get Back in the moment, right? Uh, the entirety of the rooftop concert, which we'll talk about in a moment. Working through some legendary songs, et cetera. So just kind of same stuff, some of the same stuff we've been talking about. And the rooftop concert that, that Bill mentions, we will uh, turn to in a moment. And then finally, we have at Empress Tina, my longtime friend on Twitter, who said all of it. All of it was great. <laughs> How could you choose? Uh, but Dan, let, let's, because um, we're starting to go long and I wanted to, after talk, we talk about Get Back, I wanted to just kind of talk about one of the Beatles thing with you. Um, I want to talk about the rooftop concert. Because I remember when I was discovering the Beatles, watching footage from the rooftop concert and thinking how great they sounded on tracks like Don't Let Me Down and Get Back. And I think one of the things I realized when watching the film Get Back is how it all came together relatively quickly. This all was done in a matter of weeks during which they weren't consistently in the studio with one another. So they kind of went up on the roof, not knowing how it would turn out. And it was spectacular. Um, It also was dangerous, it seemed, like physically dangerous, that there Mm -hmm. was concerns that the roof may not hold. That was specifically referenced. And then it was dangerous from the perspective of the police who showed up. And, you know, when I was watching the Beatles anthology and they would show this footage, I, I, I didn't think that the police were that threatening. 
But when they showed up in this film, they seemed to be on the edge of perhaps throwing some arrests around and doing a lot worse. They actually found one of the cops and interviewed him. He's uh, still alive today. And he was asked about that day and he didn't. He said it was basically just like a day like any other. It doesn't really stand out for him as anything major. That was mm-hmm. the impression I got. And then also another thing I just want to say about the rooftop concert is there were some scenes in Get Back which were filmed on the street level. And even watching it, watching this footage from 1969, you could tell how loud it was for the people down below. And I never had the sense that it was that loud. Like I always thought, well, can the people on the street really hear them? They're on the roof. It's a January day. It's a busy city section. Can people hear them? There's no doubt that the people could hear them and that it would have been disruptive. Now, of course, I get angry when I see that people call noise complaints because, yeah, look, if you're working and you have any type of band playing, let them play. <laughs> no, you want to do anything to break up the monotony, but you're mm-hmm. going to call a noise complaint on the Beatles. That's in, that's crazy to me. Yeah. What, what was your um, take on uh, Rooftop? So, oh, well, I think, you know, I've always loved the Rooftop concert, um, even from the footage that we, you know, saw in earlier documentaries. I think the first footage that I saw of it was in uh, Imagine John Lennon, which was a documentary from, I think, 88 was when that came out. Um, And then we got to see more of it um, on the anthology. Uh, But I always I always love the, the rooftop concert because you get to see how tight they were as a band. And I think you get to see it more than any of the, of the film uh, of them performing live from 63 through 66, um, where you couldn't hear them because of the screaming and the yelling and, uh, and the fans and the poor, uh, you know, baseball stadium sound systems. Um, You can really hear them. Um, and how how tight they were as a group, um, how in tune they were with one another, and how much fun they had playing together, and that really comes across even at this late stage on the rooftop yes. concert. Like they're enjoying themselves in that moment. Um, it's not it's not work for them. Right. You know, this is this is uh, uh, something that's coming from passion and love, not just for the music, but for each other. Um, and, and I think that's what makes it so special. And, you know, just, I think we often forget, um, and someone said this to me recently after watching it, like that they, it doesn't dawn on you, even though you know it, right. It doesn't dawn, didn't dawn on them until they were watching it again. Like, wow, this is the last time that they ever performed together live. Yeah. Like this was it. And they didn't know it at the time, you know, no one on the street knew that, but um, for that to be your last, for to be in a band and for that to be your last time performing together, um, that's not a bad way to, to go out with that being the last one, because it's a tight, it's a tight performance. Um, they're having fun. The music is great. Um, yeah, I mean, it's worth watching the whole documentary. You know, if you're going, if there's two things you're going to watch in the documentary, if you know you don't want to watch any of the other stuff, watch Paul Paul get back out of uh, thin air <laughs> yeah. and the rooftop concert. Yeah, I agree with that. 
Uh, do you prefer the studio version of Don't Let Me Down or the rooftop version more? Uh, the rooftop version. Totally. Me too. I remember yeah. hearing the studio version first years ago and <clears throat> loving it. And then hearing the live version, I'm thinking to myself, wow, that, that faster pace does work very well for that song. Um, yeah. Also, I'm sure you noticed during the rooftop <clears throat> scene that when the cops showed up on the roof, Paul saw the cops and actually seemed to love it. Yeah. That was pretty cool to see. Yeah. This, yeah. He was just sort of energized in the moment by the presence of the police. Um, yeah, the rooftop scene was a great. It's a weird thing, Dan. It's a weird thing because we all know that there's going to be this rooftop show. It's not like there's a mystery. If you're a Beatles fan, especially, you know that. But yet there was this sense of drama that Peter Jackson was able to convey. And the team behind the film have to give them a lot of credit. The way in which it was edited, it built up this sense of drama that even for you and me, who knew everything that was kind of going to happen in terms of the general storyline, it, it felt tense to me, at least. Mm -hmm. No, it did. It did. And one other thing I wanted to mention, Dan, and then I'll turn it over to you to see if there's anything else you would like to. I have a question for you, too. It just occurred to me. But uh, one thing I just want to yeah. mention is how spectacular the film looked. It may have been filmed in 1969, but it looked crisp and sharp. And it's almost like if you imagine for a moment, you could feel like it's 1969 today. Does that make any sense? It makes total sense. Yeah, it looked incredible. Yeah, it really um, did. Yeah, it, there was no like, you know, graininess or anything like that. It, it was, it was, uh, yeah, very uh, aesthetically pleasing. Before I ask you my final question about the let this get back period, anything you would like to add about the film that we didn't cover? I know it's, I know there's so much we could talk about, but quite frankly, <laughs> this is our final show of the year, and I want to get it out promptly for our listeners. So I, so I don't want to go on for three hours, but I just wanted to. Oh. Uh, you know, yeah, there's endless amounts of things that we could talk about, but I, I think one of the things that we didn't cover um, that I want to mention is getting to hear a lot of songs that we would hear either at, on Abbey Road or in solo on solo projects. Right. Yes. During this. Um, I mean, from. Uh, you know, uh, John was referring to it at by this time as uh, on the way to Marrakesh, which was child of nature, which became jealous guy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Paul playing another day. Yes. At, at, and, and I think, did, did he play a part of backseat of my card too? Is that, you know, in what? there I I, after the been. film, I had read somebody reference it. I guess it happened and I didn't remember it, but I, I think he did. I thought so. And, um, and then getting, uh, you know, um, all things must pass, um, a little bit of, uh, there's a snippet of, isn't there a pity mm -hmm. it's a little bit faster, I think, um, you know, you're getting to hear all of these songs that you'd hear later on. Right. And then also some conversations that you kind of felt like you were seeing the seed that was planted for something that would happen later. So um, John, when he talks about meeting with Alan Klein and he's talking about, oh, well, he said that he could put on this show for raise money for this cause and then he would be able to get the money there. And he's telling George this and I'm watching it and I'm like, you, I, I could feel in that moment, George kind of like taking that and putting it in his back pocket, you know, on the back burner and then Bangladesh. right? Sure. <laughs> and and it's, it's kind of like all these little moments that you're like, oh, 
I feel like I'm, you know, seeing the beginnings of something, or, you know, so that, that was really cool to see. Yeah. And it almost kind of makes you wish you could jump into the screen and say, don't break up. If you don't break up songs right. like another day and backseat of my car, they could be Beatles songs too. You know, don't, yeah. don't go your own way. Yeah. Here. Yeah. yeah Dan, I mean, that's a also great point. Like yeah. And also there's things like, I'll never understand now having seen it, why Glenn Johns and then later um, Phil Spector took the January 26th take of Long and Winding Road when they were still working on it mm. to be the master for the album rather than the January 30th take, where, which is the one we know from the video where they've got it, right? <laughs> like, and they sound tighter. And they sound tighter and, you know, John got a bad rap for the bass playing on the long and winding road. And I read a book called revolution in the head. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's by Ian McDonald. Yes. And he writes in it when he's talking about the long and winding road about John's sloppy, atrocious bass playing and how it's tantamount to sabotage uh, because it was well known that John didn't like the song or wasn't crazy about the song. And um, you know, he had a, a, you know, John had a vindictive side and that bass playing. I mean, he was definitely more um, accomplished than that. And then when you see the film and you see them going through the run throughs for that day and he's saying, I think there's one point where George Martin comes out and he's like, you know, well, the loudest thing in here is John's bass and John's going, yeah, but I can't hear it. Mm -hmm. He's like, I can't hear what I'm playing. I'm just trying to, figure it out i can't hear it and then george Mars like well your your speaker position your amp positioning and your speakers are all out of whack let's fix that and then maybe you can hear it better like then it makes sense you're like the guy's trying to figure out what to play right and he can't hear himself and that's why it's so sloppy you compare it to the january 30th where he knows what he's playing and it doesn't sound like that right why did you use the early run-through take rather than because paul's voice sounds good on both of them right that i'll never understand things that's a great point dan we'll never understand that and one of my things that I liked about the film is that you could actually see now the videos of when the songs we know by heart were recorded. So you could see, oh, this master take of Long and Winding Road, this is what it looked like when the band was doing it, or, you know, mm -hmm. I've got a feeling, or For You Blue, or whatever. It, uh, you get to see that. But you're right. I, I don't know why they use that take and not the one on January 30th. Yeah, because I feel like with a January 30th take, you probably wouldn't have had to layer the strings on so much to True. mask certain things. I mean, but I'm going to give you a let it be lightning round, Dan, by the way, to conclude the get back discussion. <laughs> I just decided to do this. OK, OK, I'll give you five lightning round questions. And what something you okay. just said made me think of this question. One, do you prefer long and winding road with strings or without strings? Without without. OK. Question yeah. number two, what song do you like more? I've got a feeling or two of us. It's a hard question, Scott. Uh, I'm going to have to go with I got a feeling. Okay, great, great. And I would have said the same thing. Uh, question number three, what album do you go to more in your listening of the Beatles? Let it be or Abbey Road? Abbey Road. Mm -hmm. Question yeah. number four, uh, what song do you think is more of a lyrical masterpiece let it be or long and winding road i'm gonna have to go with let it be and that's that's a tough one tough one go with let it be. tough one mm -hmm. and um 
So uh, the, we talked a lot tonight about George and how Get Back showcased him in such a wonderful way. There were two songs that he wrote that were prominently featured in Get Back. One was For You Blue, which ultimately appeared on the Let It Be album. And the other was Old Brown Shoe, which I believe was the B-side to Ballad of John and Yoko, correct? Mm-hmm. Which one do you like more, For You yes. Blue or Old Brown Shoe? Um, I like Old Brown Shoe. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, Great. I do. I do. Um, I like, uh, lyrically, I like it better. I like his playing with uh, contradictions. Uh, Want to love that right, but right is only half of what's wrong. Want a short-haired girl who sometimes wears it twice as long. Um, and then just the feel of it, like, the, you know, it's kind of like that that Lady Madonna-ish kind of boogie feel. I, I, I enjoy it. And there was a lot shown in the film of him writing that song, a lot of how that came together. Yeah. I think he said, I, I, I dreamt it last night or it came to me last night. Yeah, that, yeah it came like that. to me last night. Uh, so, Dan, give me a rating of Get Back, Beatles Get Back. Um, like, on, like on what scale? Like on a, on a letter grade scale or one to ten or one to ten, one to ten. Um, probably say an eight. Eight. And um, Eight. which part was your favorite? One, two, or three? Three. Me too. I agree with that. I think the rooftop three. concert had for a sure, lot to yeah. do with that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a big moment for us Beatles fans. This was a highlight. And another thing that made it very reminiscent of Beatles Anthology was the fact that it was in November, Thanksgiving time period, just like Anthology. I'm sure you had many flashbacks to uh, the Beatles Anthology. Oh, I was I was thinking to myself if if this were, you know, uh, 95, 96, we'd be uh, walking across the mall to get the box set. Um, totally. You know, uh, watching on th- watching over the weekend and coming together at school to talk about it and you know hash through everything. So, yeah, it, it was you know a lot of thinking back to that time. Great memories and still astounding that here we are as twenty twenty one draws to a close. And we're talking about Beatles releases and Beatles films and success stories. And that leads me to something I just wanted to get your thoughts on. And I'll I'll share my thoughts as well. What are your hopes for the Beatles in 2022 and beyond? Meaning so much has been released in the past couple of years. You've had box sets for Sgt. Pepper, White Album, Abbey Road, Let It Be. You've had these McCartney archive releases, although I don't think there was one in 2021. Um, you've had George reissues, John reissues, and so forth, the Get Back film. What would you want to see happen for the Beatles in 2022? What are you hoping gets released? Um, it's a great question. I mean, we've got a lot of stuff that's still in archives and that we haven't heard. And some of it I don't think we will hear for quite a while. Um, I, I would love to see, this is probably unpopular, I would love to see a um, a Paul release an archive collection version of uh, Back to the Egg. I'm with you on that. I would love to hear that. You know, I I would love to hear that. Um, I think, you know, we're going to be coming up on the 50th anniversary of uh, Concert for Bangladesh. It would be great to see something about that, um, whether it be, uh, you know, kind of a a re-release of the um, album and the film and maybe a documentary that would be cool um it would be nice to get 
because um, as great as some of the, the, the bonus disc stuff was on the Let It Be um, release, it would be nice to get some more of the cuts from the film, um, like Commonwealth and, uh, uh, and some of the other songs that were tried out there. Um, that would be a cool set to get. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, are out there um, that I would like to be released at some point. Um, but I think, you know, maybe a couple of more Paul archive collections, yeah. definitely something with, um, with concert for Bangladesh for sure. Um, and yeah, we're, tw- I mean, I think those, those, those are probably the things that stand out for me. Great choices, Dan. I would love to see all of those <laughs> released. Um, one thing I would like to add to that would be that I feel there's opportunities for other album deluxe reissues. You know, the Pepper and White album stuff were tied some, in some situations to anniversaries, 50th anniversaries and so forth. But to me, you could release something even without a, uh, a milestone anniversary. You know, there are many great Beatles albums that could be issued in a deluxe format. Rubber Soul comes to mind. Revolver comes to mind. I mean, think about how great those outtakes were on the Beatles anthology releases, like the anthology too. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear more. Of I that. agree. I I don't know why um, Rubber Soul and Revolver didn't get a deluxe release, and and I think I would re- I would really like to. I think that's where the deluxe releases should have started. Yeah, you know, I could, Rubber Soul and Revolver. Um, it would it would be great to to have that. Um, and you're right; you don't have to tie it to a um, an anniversary. Um, you could just say, okay, you know, putting it out there for you know to celebrate. You know, you can even tie it to like you, know, you could tie it to uh, 60 years of you know the Beatles in America, and just say, you know, we're going to put out Rubber Soul and Revolver Deluxe to to commemorate that. Sure. I wonder if they, they will come out eventually. I think, I think there's an opportunity there. Um, I also just find it continually fascinating how the Beatles fare in a world dominated by streaming. You know, one of the things that happened after the Beatles Get Back came out is that the Let It Be album went to the top of the Billboard rock album charts. So mm-hmm. they still have the ability, however Billboard calculates what's number one, to reach the top of the charts. And, you know, in the long term, I think one of the big questions facing the Beatles and other older artists will be, will younger generations gravitate towards albums or still generally look at them as singles types of artists? In other words, will albums as entities endure over the long term? I think that's a pretty interesting question, which only time will give us the answer to. We don't know that right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think I think it depends on the group. I think some groups do fare better than others and some releases fare better than others. Mm. Um, you know, I think it depends on the release as well. So, um, I mean, even I was just thinking of like uh, uh, Pink Floyd recently, you know, um, a release of a, uh, a new edition of Dark Side of the Moon or Wish You Were Here or The Wall um, is going to fare a lot better than like a reissue of Momentary Lapse of Reason, mm-hmm. uh, which they did recently and there really wasn't <laughs> much interest in it um so i think it depends on the on the release as well um the band and the release so yeah i think the beatles uh you know are always going to garner a lot of attention um and move that needle still 
um, Led Zeppelin, you know, Zeppelin's going to move that needle to stones. Um, so, which is good to see. Speaking of um, the stones and Zeppelin, one of my favorite podcasts out there, the Beatles books podcast is one of my favorite hosted by a guy named Joe Wisby. It's a fantastic podcast. And in his most recent episode, he had on the author, Bob Spitz, who wrote a, a wonderful biography of the Beatles uh, came out over a decade ago. You may remember it. I'm sure you read it at the time. And he has a book coming out very soon, which is a biography of Led Zeppelin. And at the end of the podcast, he was asked what other projects he's working on. And he's been named as the Rolling Stones biographer. So he has a book coming out about oh. the Stones. So this guy, Bob Spitz, is a fantastic journalist. I mean, this is like uh, he's writing books made for you and me, Dan. He, he's writing, he wrote a biography of the Beatles. He has one coming out about Led Zeppelin and he's working on a Rolling Stones one. Just unbelievable. That's, that's awesome. Um, and uh, Zeppelin needs, a, needs a, another uh, bi a biography. I think the last biography that they had out um, was a book called Hammer of the Gods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think the author was, uh, I, it, it escapes me, but it was kind of more, I think it kind of fell more into the Zeppelin lore rather mm -hmm. than, you know, an actual um, candid picture of the band and, right. you know, what they were all about. So I think it'd be nice to see a fresh take on Zeppelin, you know, um, and, uh, and without all the, you know, Jimmy Page, Black Magic stuff. <laughs> sure, absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, so to all our listeners, uh, you can find us on social media at Twitter. We're at Stuff We Love Pod. Instagram, Stuff We Love Podcast. Our website is stuffwelovepodcast.podbean.com. We have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page as well. And our email is stuffwelovepodcast at gmail.com. And if you have not done so already, please subscribe and uh, leave us those good reviews, which makes it easier for others to find the show. Uh, Scott, we got uh, so into our conversation tonight about Get Back that we forgot about the Stuff We Love segment. Dan, my apologies to you and to our listeners. Uh, you are right. I got so into the discussion uh, that, that we forgot about this segment. And uh, let's do it now for our listeners that are new to the show. This is the part where tonight Dan and I are going to give you a recommendation of something we're enjoying now. It could be a movie, a book, a song, a video game. We probably not going to be Beatles get back because we just recommended that to you. We just, but uh, Dan, please, what is your stuff? We love recommendation. Um, so uh, the, the, my stuff uh, we love recommendation is another um, anniversary box set uh, that just came out recently. It might be surprising, but it's uh, the um, kiss uh, released the anniversary box set for destroyer, which was their 1976 album. Um, probably their big breakthrough release after Alive. Um, and uh, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. It's got a remastered version of the album. Um, it has demo versions of the songs, which are pretty cool to hear. Um, they came a long way from the demos to the finished product with uh, Bob Ezrin producing. Um, he definitely helped, uh, helped them out a whole lot. Um, and then it has a, uh, a live recording, I want to say, from Japan, um, from the tour. So it's, it's really a, a cool collection. Um, I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, 
a lot different than the Beatles, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but still some some good stuff there to check out. Thank you, Dan. Let me ask you a question because I am not a huge Kiss fan. Not that I don't like them. I just never really listened to them. Do you think Destroyer is a good place to start? Um, no, no, okay. um, because Destroyer is very much. I mean, there's a lot of big songs on Destroyer. Uh, Beth is on Destroyer, Detroit Rock City, um, Shout It Out Loud. But Destroyer was kind of their attempt to make a solid studio album. Um, They had not really gotten the sound in the studio that they wanted. And that's why they hooked up with Bob Ezrin. um, And he kind of brought his touch to Destroyer. It's a little weird in places. in some places, it kind of feels like you're trying to like overproduce something that doesn't need to be overproduced. Mm-hmm. I think if you really want to get into Kiss, the place to start is Alive mm-hmm. because um, you get to hear their live sound, which is probably where they were at their best. But it's also um, the songs that make up the, the tracks on Alive are from their first three studio albums, which I think is their strongest output. I think if they just went from their debut album to maybe Love Gun and then stopped, uh, that would have been that would have been enough. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's going to anger a lot of Kiss fans, but that's just my take on it. If that was their period of recording and then they were done. This is a show of hot takes. That's what the Stuff We Love podcast is. Yeah, yeah. But um, um, mm-hmm. Destroyer is definitely like start with Alive, then move to Destroyer, and then you can go out from there. Great. Great recommendation. I'll, I'll do that and let you know... Uh, how that turns out. Joe, as you know, is a big kiss fan as well from the stuff. Yes. We love podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Dan, great recommendation. Thank you. Uh, so my stuff we love recommendation is a movie I just watched on HBO max called eight bit Christmas and eight bit refers to the old video game graphic style. Uh, it's, it's a comedy film. It's sort of a, I'm going to call it a wonder years esque comedy drama. That did I say it stars Neil Patrick Harris? Did I mention that a moment ago? I don't you okay. didn't say that yet. No. Neil Patrick Harris is one of the stars and he plays um, a guy who uh, is with his daughter around Christmas time and he takes her to his parents' house and uh, she sees the Nintendo, the original NES system that he had as a kid. And he proceeds to tell her the story of what it was like when he was a kid and his efforts to get a Nintendo and uh, everything he went through. It reminds me a lot of those great holiday movies where you know people are going after the hot toy and their efforts to get it and will they succeed? Uh, as someone who grew up on Nintendo, I found it very nostalgic. It's extremely funny. I found myself laughing out loud <clears throat> at several scenes. And I think if you're a child of the 80s, as you and I are, Dan, uh, you will get a real kick out of it. It's charming, emotional, and uh, quite a, a, a fun film for the holiday season. So that is my Stuff We Love recommendation, 8-Bit Christmas. Awesome. Did you have Nintendo growing up, Dan? I did. Yes, I did. What is what a um, system? What a system. A lot of great memories of my uh of the original Nintendo and Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's it's, uh, it's all good. There's a place not far from me called uh, Yestercades. Um I think there's a couple of them. And um they have, you know, a lot of the old video games from uh the the 80s, the arcade games. But they also have uh, some couches set up with the different consoles and they have an original Nintendo. So there's been a few times where I've gone there and just, you know, I usually will go on like a Sunday afternoon when there's no one there 
mm-hmm. um, or it's not as busy and I'll grab the Nintendo and just play, you know, Mario Brothers, Mario Brothers 3, Kung Fu, like <laughs> whatever, all the old, all the old fun stuff. So it's fantastic. That makes me now, now I want to go play my Nintendo Switch and uh, <laughs> in bed just doing that. Um, well, uh, Dan, great stuff. We love recommendations tonight. And uh, I'll just take a moment here as we conclude to first off, say thank you to all of our listeners. We've, we're very grateful for you. We've gotten some new subscribers along the way. You heard me in recent episodes talk about uh, just on Spotify alone, our listener growth, which has been absolutely tremendous. And we're very appreciative. Uh, and Dan and I, and everyone else that's a part of the stuff we love podcast, just want to take a moment to wish our listeners well, happy holidays and a happy and healthy new year. Uh, stay safe during these uh, unnerving times. I mean, there's a lot of scary stuff out there in the world. And I don't know about you, Dan, but for me, I find music to be a source of great comfort and joy, uh, especially the Beatles. I find it to be a very sort of uh, calming presence in my life, which is just just wonderful. And to have things like Get Back and these reissues and all the just the albums themselves, which hold up well after all these years is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So, uh, Dan, happy new year. Happy holidays to you, my friend. You too, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, we'll go around this virtual table one more time as we conclude tonight's episode. I am Scott. And I'm Dan. And this has been the stuff we love podcast.